Welcome to Too Much Not Enough, a podcast about the obsessions of two very intense people. I'm Emma Winston. And I'm Darius Kazemi. And today we're going to talk to you about sampling. I guess we should probably define what sampling is. How are we defining or what, or what, what sampling we mean? Is. What we mean when we say sampling? What right? do we mean when what we do say we mean? sampling? Because right. The okay. more I read, the less sure I am. I know, right? Um, so there's there's a few definitions of sampling. I think really I want to talk about the kind of sampling in a musical context mm-hmm. as a musical technique. Yeah. There's a technical definition of sampling, which is literally like how do you digitally record audio, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting and something that I'm super interested in and touches on the musical stuff. But really, for me, it's about like using mechanical recordings of existing audio in the context of a new work. You know, it's not, oh, you're just recording it for posterity. Mm -hmm. There's some kind of reframing going on. The source can be musical or non-musical. To me, it needs to be a mechanical recording, doesn't necessarily have to be digital. Like, we're going to talk a little bit about this, I think, but like sampling is different from quoting, you know, where you might play a recognizable piece of music Mm -hmm. of your own. Even though that's then mechanically recorded. Yeah, but it might not be mechanically recorded, right? You could be doing that live. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, you know, it's uh, (laughs) so, so that's. That's kind of how I want to like frame the use of sampling. So pretty much in that like pop culture remixing sense, mm-hmm. like sonic remixing sense yeah. of the word. So and mostly I'm just excited to have this conversation with you because I've been obsessed with sampling since I was a little kid. I was pretty much I was born in 1983, which is basically when digital samplers started to be commercially like affordable thing Mm -hmm. for most musicians so i sort of feel a kind of like connection to Mm -hmm. sampling just through my lifetime uh as i've grown so has the so has the process although it does predate digital samplers Mm. as well i am generally very confused by sampling as a process and it's something that i kind of avoid in my own stuff because I am confused about the legality and the process and yeah. the ethics and yes. which I assume is stuff that we're going to talk about and like we the sort of dovetailing point of like this particular topic of interest was like I think I put on my like list of things to talk about found sound right. recording stuff which like that's I think virtually all of the kind of sampled stuff that I've done has been kind of like sound art with found sound which mm-hmm. generally doesn't involve people and then I don't have to worry about all of that stuff right it's like field recordings of yeah. nature or something mm-hmm. right yeah so that's kind of the angle that I'm coming at it from but it's something that really interests me and I feel like I should develop some kind of like ethic and opinion on <laughs> in order to be able to do it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so maybe I guess by the end of this podcast, yeah, I maybe, will maybe that's our that. goal. For me, I've been really interested in sampling 
I mean, you know, just musically, I always thought it was a cool thing to hear. You know, I've always liked that kind of postmodern aesthetic of taking things from here and there and, mm -hmm. and pastiche and bricolage and that kind of thing. I guess I was 14 when I started making music as like a serious hobby. And I didn't really play any musical instruments, mm -hmm. and but I was good at computers. For me, it was just a very practical thing. And it was encouraged by the medium that I was making music in, which at the time was uh, this program called Impulse Tracker. For people who are listening who aren't familiar with trackers, it's basically how uh, a lot of sort of not really old school video game music, but sort of middle old school video game music, sort of like late 80s, early 90s was created. And it was largely born of technical constraints where you didn't have a lot of disk space, but you did have a processor that was fast enough to play a bunch of sounds at the same time, essentially. So these trackers were basically audio sequencers where you could say, you know, maybe you'd have four tracks to work with, but you could make one of them a bunch of drum samples and one of them mm -hmm. a, a bass line and one of them, you know, all the other sounds as you wanted to. And Impulse Tracker in particular was very sample based. And so as opposed to a sequencer that might be synthesizing audio in like a live way, um, this was sequencing samples. And so you would take a little piece of a drum sound. And so, you know, these were only maybe a few hundred kilobytes tops. So it was easy to pass around very long mm -hmm. songs through uh, this is very popular in like the demo scene as well, which was like a sort of European centric computing computer nerd thing where you try to make the coolest audio visual effects that you could uh, in like the smallest amount of memory possible on a computer. How does that work if you have to include the samples? How can it only be a few hundred kilobytes? Well, so first of all, they're like 8 bit 22 kilohertz samples. Oh, okay, right. That so these are very low fidelity samples, mm -hmm. but they all get kind of layered up. So it doesn't really, it comes out in the mix, mm -hmm. you know, that's a big part of it. But also a lot of the samples are just very short, you know, a single mm -hmm. guitar pluck even yeah. at a, 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 is even at, in high quality is a small file. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, I did this tracker music kind of stuff. So I was, I basically learned to develop an ear for listening to the songs that I listened to while at the same time, I was enjoying them on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was just constantly keeping a metaphorical eye open for tiny snippets that I could use that might be like a clean drum break or a clean mm -hmm. bass note or, uh, or a single, you know, sometimes in a rap song, the beat will drop out and the rapper will say three words with no accompanying music behind it. And I loved grabbing those little things and mm -hmm. like using them in my tracks yeah i i definitely don't have as much of a history with it as you do i it's something that i've been kind of saying it's like the next thing that i'm gonna get really into for me i suppose the interest is in the fact that it, it's kind of like a counterpart to synthesizers i feel like there's mm -hmm. synthesis and there's sampling and i spend a lot of time thinking about and doing synthesis and a fair bit of time thinking about sampling but not so much time actually doing it in practice I suppose a lot of my kind of exposure to it has been through like sound art and kind of found sound stuff which is very different I think from the kind of hip-hop sampling scene for all sorts of reasons which I'm sure we're also going to get into and the kind of the sampling that that I have done has been 
much more kind of going out making field recordings and then turning them into something weird and I think some of the fascination about that for me comes from like preserving things in a way that maybe I wouldn't otherwise have thought to preserve them like I'm kind of obsessed with permanence and not wanting to lose the memory of things and I feel like sampling especially kind of soundscape type sampling isn't necessarily about capturing something accurately but it can be about rendering it in a way that's kind of emotionally accurate yes and I think some of the interest for me comes from that but having said that I am also very interested in this idea of kind of taking a pre-existing work and chopping up and making something completely new with it so I, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm sort of, I'm almost missing that really crucial thing of of being able to listen out for stuff that is borrowed and chopped up. For me, it all sounds new. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is interesting. Like when I listen to like a, I mean, a song in any genre where I think I'm hearing samples rather than played instruments, like the the kind of listening that I'm doing is you're really looking for these kind of like mechanical tells. Uh, you know, if you hear a guitar strum, right? You you don't know, devoid of context, whether that guitar strum was played on an instrument by the person whose song you're listening to, or if it was sampled from some, you know, other place, unless you've heard that sound before. So of course, on the one level, it's like, well, okay, how deep does your musical knowledge go? And so at that point, it's like the sort of like, oh, I recognize that song because my mom used to play it on record when I was a kid or something, right? So that I know where that sound comes from, or that comes from a movie that I've seen or, or whatever. You can also tell that something's a sample in context. Of course, there's genre conventions. So in rap, you'll often hear a sample looped uh, and so, you know, if you're listening to a rap song and you're hearing something, it might actually be a sample in the back. But there's also these weird mechanical tells as well, especially depending on the, the era of music that you're listening to or the subgenre. So, for example, there was a lot of sampling done in the 90s in rap music. Uh, and a lot of it you can tell is samples. I mean, partly because they're very popular songs and you probably have heard the source songs that they came from. Uh, but beyond that... Um, you get distinctive sounds as well. For example, uh, the SP-1200 was a very popular commercial sampler uh, that was used in hip-hop. Uh, and that actually had a had 12-bit audio. So it wasn't 8-bit and it wasn't 16-bit waves. It was 12-bit waves. And that actually applies a very distinct kind of fuzzy filter to okay. the samples. And so if I'm listening to a hip-hop song and I hear that kind of 12-bit crunch on something, I'll be like, oh, they're going for that SP-1200 sound, or maybe mm -hmm. they used an SP-1200, and this is therefore sampled from somewhere. Okay, that's um, really interesting. Another, uh, another, of course, just like listening for loops as well, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, if you hear a loop and it sounds exactly the same over and over and over again, you know it's not a, you know, a guitarist playing the same mm -hmm. Baseline, unless know, it was um, done in the studio and then chopped up in post, which yes, I which, guess but, that's partly a genre convention thing, right? Okay. And that and that also is a way that some people sample. So I talked or I alluded earlier to quoting, which is you know mm. sort of the word that I use for when a musician you know, references another piece of music in 
what they are playing. So jazz musicians used to do this a lot. They would sort of sneak in a few notes of something as a reference, sort of an intertextuality thing, like a mm, reference yeah, to I something Yeah, I mean, it happens else. constantly in classical music as well. Like. Yeah, yeah. So hip-hop was actually, at least as a, as a recorded medium uh, or a recorded genre originally kind of built on quoting. You look at a, a song like Rapper's Delight, which was the first, you know, commercially successful mm-hmm. hip-hop song, and, uh, and it's studio musicians playing the rhythm section portion of Sheik's Good Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just they're just asked to play it on loop. On loop, I'm using air quotes here, because it's not on loop. They're just, they just told the studio musicians, like, look, you're playing this for nine minutes and don't mm-hmm. mess up, you know. <laughs> um, but that's become now a way of getting around copyright issues, right? Yeah, it's, and so this was yeah. all pre-sampling copyright stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the time, they did it because they didn't have samplers. Yeah. Uh, and they couldn't loop things digitally. You could do things with mm. tape loops, but even then the tape loop tech wasn't great until the 80s. And tape loops start to break down, don't they? They do, time, yeah. Which yeah. means that you don't have a perfect loop, even though that in itself can be really cool. Right, yeah. At the same time as like that was happening, you had a kind of analog sampling that would happen in the early, early, like the mid-70s when hip-hop was first really started before it was a recorded form of music where you had guys like DJ Cool Herc in the Bronx who would set up two turntables and have two copies of the same record. And then they, you know, they noticed that people like to dance during the breakdown portion of funk songs. So he'd just play the song up to the break. And then as the break ended, he would queue up on the second turntable, the beginning mm-hmm. of the next break and move the crossfader over. And then back cue the second the original record and then he would just juggle the two records Mm -hmm. like that manually looping the recorded sound um for as long as he wanted to 10 minutes or whatever so cool yeah so people (laughs) would just dance they would just go crazy he's like well they Mm -hmm. go crazy when this break happens so what if i make the break happen forever (laughs) um and that was really how hip-hop got started Mm -hmm. um and so it was this almost analog form of like sampling and and looping type of thing but it it wasn't done with you know digital samplers Mm. or even tape-based stuff it was just it was just this playback medium the record the vinyl record that was being sort of uh repurposed Mm -hmm. uh, for that but it was really in like the mid 80s when samplers got cheap enough that people started having them in their studio and would be able to actually use samplers as a production instrument uh, and so that was when all of a sudden you had a, you, one of the things that I love about sampling actually is related to what you were saying earlier about found sound and that kind of like, um, uh, almost like need to preserve things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why I know so many, like the jazz and funk records that I do know is because they were sampled in songs that I liked and I went back and listened to the originals and was like, oh, okay. this is really cool too. Was this like, was this a presumably in the internet age? Like, I don't know how you would go back and, and find the sources for these well, things. Well, uh, post 1993 or whatever, uh, liner notes had to list samples. Oh, of course. So yeah, you okay. could just do it through a liner yeah, notes. That makes um, sense. Yeah. But before it was legally required, it was more difficult for sure. Is that still the case? Do liner notes list every sample? I mean, do do we even have liner notes anymore? 
Well, yeah, true. <laughs> well, also, I suppose that assumes that the sample has been cleared. And yes, like, yeah, yeah. Assuming the sample the time, has been cleared, right? So, cleared. so you know, also in the '90s, you know, I was listening to CDs that I would buy at the store that came from major record labels that had legal departments. So, you know, the samples were basically all cleared. Uh, yeah, if you got something that was like a like a local mixtape from a DJ or something, yeah, you you would have to ask around, ask your mm-hmm. friends. And it's kind of like with video games before the internet where it's like, oh, who knows what the secret, you know, entrance to the cave is. We got to like figure this out, you know. I just didn't know those things. Right. I didn't know and them I mostly until the didn't internet. know those things either. <laughs> if you did, you were lucky, you know. This is all prior to a series of, uh, of American court cases. The most important one involved the hip hop uh, the rapper uh, Biz Markie. Uh, in, yeah, I uh, had not come across that before. Yeah, in 1991, Grand Upright Music Limited, the Warner Brothers Records Incorporated. It was a it was a U.S. court case. Biz Markie had a had a rap song that was not a hit, not even one of his better songs. Uh, but it was called Alone Again. His song was called Alone Again, and he and he sampled Gilbert O'Sullivan's. Uh, uh, song Alone Again, which is also called Alone Again. Uh, and, and prior to this, sampling was really that blatant. You would basically just take the chorus to, uh, you know, the, take the uh, take the main riff from a song that you liked, release your own song, call it the same thing as the original song, and then rap over it. As a, you know, uh, And it's not that there wasn't an art to that, but it was definitely much more blatant before the mm. courts took notice. I mean, I didn't think that the use in this song was as obvious as I didn't think it was that obvious and it, and which it, maybe and it's, it's me maybe it's it's to me it it didn't sound like he'd just kind of taken it's quite a short loop it is a short loop used. yes it's short but it's identifiable uh, and and it's, I suppose and he does he sings a part of the chorus at one yes, point yes so he over. also kind of quotes it as well mm-hmm. which Bismarcky loved to do uh yeah. his a lot of his songs the chorus was just him doing his own sort of drunken singing style uh interpretation of an existing pop song but it is also i suppose him kind of pointing to the sample and going look this is yeah. where i got it from yeah exactly and uh and so it's like so a lot of people would consider this homage um mm. you know and something done with like some level of respect for the original song uh, I mean, obviously, it can be done with disrespect, for sh- like anything can. But um, I think in a lot of cases, it was done with some respect for the original material. Of course, also lots of musicians have the attitude of like, you're making money off of this mm-hmm. thing that I recorded. Like, and that's the that's what happened with Gilbert O'Sullivan here, where he well, was. This is the interesting was, thing. I, he yeah, wanted songwriting I... credit. He didn't just want money to clear the sample. Mm-hmm. He wanted actual songwriting credit. And if you look at a lot of rap songs that sample stuff, you can, even if they don't list the sample in the liner notes, you can look at who has the songwriting credit and which is mm. tied to royalties and all that other stuff. And I mean, I couldn't see. work out from the stuff that I was reading about the case, kind of what the impetus was for for like this to be the time that Grand Upright followed it up. Like, I don't know what Gilbert O'Sullivan himself had to do with it. I don't know how much of it was the record company. I don't know what made them decide that this specific thing, this was the thing that they needed to kind of stop from happening when presumably it had been happening for... I mean, well, it had been happening for at least 20 years before that. Yeah, well, and and I think part of it is 1991 because I'm... 
old enough to remember 1991. Um, I mean, I was three. Yeah, so you know, <laughs> I, I was I was the ripe old age of like eight. So I was, but but also like I was cognizant. I was watching the the nightly news with my parents and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and it was a real uh, 91 was like a um uh. Uh, a moral panic moment in hip hop mm. in the United States. It's when gangster rap first became popular. Okay, um, yeah. on the, I remember seeing on the nightly news around the time of this case, there were a lot of news articles, like 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 stern newscasters being like, they would play you a section of the Gilbert O'Sullivan song mm. and play you a section of the Bismarcky song, and they they sort of shake their heads and go, "Well, it doesn't sound like art <laughs> to me," you know. Um, <laughs> uh, so there was a lot of moral panic yeah, around that makes this. Sense. Uh, so I think it was I mean, kind it of a perfect, sense, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it was this perfect storm because there had been court cases before this that mm-hmm. addressed this somewhat, but this was at a much higher level uh, yeah. in the U.S. court system. Uh, so it mm-hmm. was higher and it, and it was a well-known artist who had a, a hit single out and combined with the moral panic around things like gangster mm. rap, it really, it became important. It's, I suppose, yeah, music that's part of the white mainstream yeah, I guess also because it was well. Warner Brothers that lost the case too, so they're like yeah. a huge. I yeah, I label. couldn't work out how how large a label Grand Upright were. Yeah, it makes the dynamic kind of interesting that the defendant was Warner Brothers. They were nothing compared to Warner Brothers, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, so how big is Uber compared to Google? Well, you know, not that big, right? But honestly, I think Grand Upright probably wasn't even mm. was just a small label anyway. Um, and it was definitely one of those cases of like they got a very you know they got a judge who was very sort of uh, uh, biased against the defendants and all that kind of thing too. Yeah, but. I mean, I think actually, in the context of the kind of nineteen nineties moral panic about hip hop, it it makes a little more sense that yeah. there's so much Bible stuff in yes in the uh, the decision. Yeah. It, like the opening of the case is is thou shalt not steal right which... yeah yeah so is it sampling is it stealing and like this judge was like it's definitely stealing if you don't pay mm-hmm. for it it's really interesting it's also it's also interesting to me because like Warner Brothers as a defendant in this case mm. also stands to gain from losing it in a sense because they have a huge backlog of music that they could make money off of through this ruling. So it's this weird kind of like conflict of interest type Mm. of thing going on. But, uh, but the, the result of this is that you basically have pre 1991 rap records and post 1991 rap records. Uh, And so you had this golden age of sampling, especially in 89, 1990, with records like Paul's Boutique and uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back and um, uh, Three Feet High and Rising. And then all of a sudden, it became illegal to make that kind of music or it at least mm-hmm. became, you know, uh, uh, prohibitive, prohibitively expensive to yeah. make that kind of music. Yeah, I mean, I I actually didn't realize quite how significant the mechanical rights could be for sampling royalties until reading about this stuff like it's possible that you can have up to a hundred percent of royalties demanded for the use of a sample which i had no idea about yep yep so there are there are there are musicians out there who are rich like basically because 
they were sampled in a popular mm-hmm. rap song. And I mean, yeah. that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, especially if they're splitting the, you know, the royalties with the, the rapper or whatever. Like, you know, it, it can be a rising tide lifts all boats kind of situation. That is, is maybe, but the rights fees for using a particular artist in a song are extremely high. You might have the budget to use that sample but you can't then put it into a kind of collage of lots right. of things like the um what was his name the steinsky payoff mix yeah which, yeah um which again was something i didn't know about and probably should have because it sounds like it's kind of an extremely sort of seminal moment in like the history of sampling is this super complicated, like, sort of mashup remix of like a million things all put into one track. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds a lot like a, like a where, girl talk album, but it came yeah. out in the 80s. And you presumably wouldn't be able to do that unless you chose your samples extremely carefully, at which point it becomes a much more difficult thing to kind of do aesthetically because you're choosing based on what you can afford. Right. That's why so, I uh, that, that's why I sort of refer to like 88 through 90 as kind of a mm-hmm. golden age because you did get records like Three Feet High and Rising that were these massive sound collages uh, because they didn't have to care. They could just take whatever. And of course you still have people to this day who do that kind of stuff. It's just bootleg and they can't really make any money off of it. I mean, there's a lot of it happening on SoundCloud and YouTube. Right. Like, I mean, all all over the place, which is, I think one reason why I, I don't think I realized exactly how prohibitive sample clearance could be. Like I knew if, if I wanted to release a record that had a bunch of samples on that it would involve some kind of negotiation, but I actually didn't realise how significant that negotiation was because most of my exposure to this stuff has been online where people aren't making any money anyway. Right, they just... And are still having takedown requests. Right, yeah. So... Yeah, so it's... uh, And so it's just... It's fascinating to me that this court case caused an enormous aesthetic shift in what was probably the most important pop music mm-hmm. genre in America in the 1990s. It's just, uh, it, it's just kind of, and you can hear it too. Like in, you're absolutely correct. If you listen to rap songs from that kind of SP 1200 era that I was referring to, which is like maybe 93 to 97, um, the, those very much focused on like a single loop usually very obscure from very obscure records so probably cheap to clear the rights for and uh and then maybe you would do multiple things with that one song so you might sample little bits from different parts of the song or you would get uh one of the readings that I that I found for this podcast was this interview uh with this producer Easy Moby who's basically to us talking about how like once that court case came in to play he was like okay i have to step up my game and basically just stop i can't just loop stuff i have to like play the samples more like an instrument and like re-trigger them a lot and what i find interesting about that is that that's illegal as well it is yeah right it is it is totally illegal so (laughs) it's still it's but it's fun it's funny that it's still like inspired people Mm. to change up their style in one way or another. But I find it fascinating that that's the direction that it went in, rather than being like, well, okay, I have to use 
drum machines now. Yeah, or yeah. Record it, it, it my is, own musicians. Right. It is it's, interesting. I, I mean, and- still, I still get to use the samples, but I have to chop them up so that people don't know that I've done it. Right. Well, so and there was a, there was it, a strain of people caught, doing that too. Yeah, yeah. There was there was a so like so like. I'm going to go back to the Beastie Boys again because uh, they're, they're a really like clear example of this. You know, mm-hmm. in 85 or 86, License to Ill was one of those. It was like a drum machines and samples album, but mm-hmm. very simple tape loop samples. Um, and then um, Paul's Boutique was 89, and that was in that golden age. So they had these these samplers uh, that they didn't have before. And that's like the ultimate sort of like collage Mm -hmm. uh, album uh, with just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uncleared samples, oftentimes like two dozen samples from different songs in the same song. Um, So very much like what Steinsky and those other people were doing. And then their next album was in 92, Check Your Head, which was a year after this court ruling. And that was when they decided, okay, it's too expensive to sample old funk records like we were doing and and funk and jazz records like we were doing. And we've been kind of learning to play instruments anyway. So we're just going to like jam as a band and then sample our own jams. They would still clear samples here and there, but it was much more like most albums of the time where it's like, you know, one sample clearance per song for like Mm -hmm. a, a crucial sound or something um uh, so there was that kind of progression and eventually you get to the point of like the sort of um mega hit like um you know biggie and puffy stuff from 90 from the mid 90s where it was like uh you know uh, these the 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 top rappers in the game would spend extravagant amounts of money to like license a song a song by the police you know, like a very mm. recognizable one. And that almost became a kind of signifier of wealth in and of yeah, itself. Was, was say, like, well, I can afford this song. Look at me. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, actually. That hadn't occurred to me as as a, a possible outcome of this, that the, the samples that you actually choose to use become a kind of signifier of <laughs> of what you can afford to do and how right. important you are relative to the artist that you're sampling. I, yeah, one of the oh, things ahead. I thought was really interesting about the um about like the story that Easy Moby told about kind of he was like summoned to a meeting by his record label and given a list of artists that he wasn't allowed to sample. Yeah. Which rather than just being like don't sample anything in a recognizable way, it's like don't sample these people in a recognizable right. way because they're the ones that will fuck you up. Yeah, I mean you do not touch a Beatles record, you know, like <laughs> 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 But also like that's actually one of the things that makes Paul's Boutique as an album sound like it does. They use so many Beatles samples in that record. Oh, that's interesting. Which is totally and unheard that was, of. That was just before this court case happened. Yeah, right? that was like two yeah. years before the court case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, and so really, and like the court the case was yeah, and things released before the court case are sort of grandfathered in mm-hmm. as it's like it's okay. But that's so weird because there's so much that's like borrowed slash stolen in Beatles songs, Uh right? Yep. Yep. Uh, Which, (laughs) how, how, how do we reconcile these things? And I do think it was a specific attempt within this moral panic to litigate black culture in America. Like that's, it it was was essentially punitive. Yeah. Like you can't, we are canceling rap through the courts. Uh, And of course it didn't succeed 
but it was a really interesting attempt to just like litigate a genre mm. away. Yeah, I mean that's very kind of clear from some of the language that's used in the court case. Like he describes the rapping as gibberish, which is which has racial undertones of its yes, own. Yes, it does. <laughs> It's such a weird thing that we're dealing with this because so much of everything in pop culture is remixed at this point. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like, where do you draw the line? I was reading this. If, have you read uh, Lawrence Lessig's remix? Um, I'm, no, I haven't, but I'm sort of familiar with the sort of yeah, bullet point. I mean, I'd completely forgotten that I'd read it, but it's essentially about this exact issue. Like, we're not equipped to deal with the fact that hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people are creating culture by remixing it right i mean when when i'm making bots i'm often essentially what i consider sampling language Mm. you know either directly from the public twitter stream or um uh or from you know project gutenberg or whatever and you know some of it's pretty cut and dry it's like well okay these are public domain works on project gutenberg Mm. so I can legally do whatever, and then, like, morally, I feel like I should probably credit the original authors, yeah. which I do. The difficulty in audio is the way that it's the way that it's licensed and the way that rights are collected is so odd. And this is probably something that I will have to Google to make sure I'm <laughs> accurate about it. Like, I don't, I'm not entirely sure how this squares with the fact that performing rights are collected solely by songwriters yeah it yes which is correct so how does that work in the context of sampling yeah and there is so little transparency in that entire industry of kind of royalty collection anyway right it's one of the things that america i think does slightly better than here because you at least have multiple organizations working on it we have one yeah if you don't ally with prs then you are screwed (laughs) right and i (laughs) probably shouldn't say that in a public podcast in case (laughs) prs decide that prs already hate me um because they overpaid me by a thousand pounds and i took a long time to give it back uh (laughs) don't put that on the podcast okay um but then there's mechanical rights, which you can yeah. choose to collect or not to collect as a songwriter. So if you choose not to collect them, then does that mean that it's legal to sample your work? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't collect mechanical rights because I don't understand them, essentially. Yeah. So well, I don't know is... if that means it's legal to sample me. And like all legal things, this is a whole sub-industry. So there are mm. lawyers whose entire practice is not just intellectual property, but intellectual property with a focus on sampling law. Yeah. And, you know, like all things with law, well, how good's your lawyer? How much money do you have? How, you know, how, what district are you in? You know, yep. all these other sorts of things. So it's, uh, it's far from cut and dry. But yes, generally you do make the royalty money if you have a songwriting credit, which is why a lot of these early lawsuits were about getting a songwriting credit on mm. these rap songs yep. as the person who was sampled. So that they could oh, then I get see. royalties off of the rap song oh. as well. Right. That makes sense. So maybe the solution then is to somehow change how we license music. Yeah. I mean, I think the solution... I'm actually very excited about 2019 as a year because at the end of 2019, uh, that's the first time in 30 years that works will be coming out of copyright again and going into the public oh. domain in the United States. 
I did not know that. Yeah, so I think we're stuck in 1923 right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the end of 2019, we're going to start getting things from 1924. <laughs> I had no idea that this was how it worked. So it's not yeah. just like a year on year. No, like... because it was, it's been delayed mostly by Disney um, uh, oh. over and over again. So in the late 90s, that 1924 stuff was supposed to come out of copyright. But... Um, uh, but it, uh, but then, like you know, on, in the Clinton era, there was uh, Congress passed a law that I think was either literally or derogatorily referred to as the Mickey, the Mickey Mouse law. But uh, it was basically like Mickey can't come out of copyright. Uh, you know, we still need rights to Mickey. We can't have people posting, you know, porn starring Mickey Mouse and making money off of that. Uh, which would be legal if he were public domain, mm. um, and so uh, and so they extended it by another like twenty five years or twenty years or something, and now we are at the end of that twenty year period, and there does not appear to be legal movement right now towards gearing up for extending it again. It seems mm. like people are just going to let at least for this year, if twenty nineteen, let these things. Mickey doesn't happen until twenty twenty two though. So oh, I know. was going to say, like, does that mean that there will suddenly be Mickey Mouse porn? No, but you could definitely make a, a Birth of a Nation porn uh, okay. if you wanted to. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm assuming we're both pro reuse of work in other work right right i mean i mean i certainly am it's the it's the core of everything that i make essentially is you know i mean i suppose stuff. it's the core of everything that everyone makes even if you're not directly well sampling. right i mean my friend kirby ferguson has a great short documentary called everything is a remix uh that is Ooh. really worth if, if you're basically, if you've listened to this podcast and you've gotten this far in the episode, you will probably like Everything is a Remix. It's sort of talking about how creativity in general is this sort of transformative process of taking in what came before you. And, and there's no such thing as complete novelty. It's always some kind of transformative process. I mean, I kind of think that's true of not just creativity, but like identity and... Yeah. We're all patchworks of everything that we've experienced. And right. Consumed. Although I guess if you want to take creativity and just expand that to encompass creation, uh, then it does apply to everything. Mm. So just making things. But on the other hand, we exist in this kind of odd cultural position, particularly now, where if something is not tangible people struggle to motivate themselves to pay for it. Right. And that's why we need fully automated luxury communism and then we can everyone can that's, everyone can steal and remix everything that they that's want. That's the solution. That's we'll live the in solution. remix utopia. There's a there's a futurist, God, what's his name? I don't know how to pronounce it. Gerd Leonhardt, I think. Do you know? No. Of him? No. He has he's published a couple of um books like ebooks which you can either buy or you can just download from his website essentially about how he would revolutionize the music industry and from memory and i might be completely misremembering because i haven't read him for ages he essentially predicted spotify 10 years before it happened but mm. he thought that it would be paid for through like a kind of 
semi-centralized system like water or gas or electricity. Yeah. Because the way that music would be consumed through streaming services would be more akin to water than to it utilities, would be to... yeah. Yeah, which is kind of what's happened, but the payment system hasn't shifted to accommodate it. Right. And and I kind of... And don't also, I know... don't think he was probably imagining like 0. 0.00000001 cents per listen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And... In theory, I suppose under that model, it could work better because if you're being paid as if you're... No, it wouldn't work any better, would it? (laughs) But where do you... Yeah, where do you draw the line? I just don't know. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about nature's theft. This has been Too Much, Not Enough. I'm Darius Kazemi, also known as Tiny Subversions on Twitter or tinysubversions.com. I'm Emma Winston, a.k.a. Deerful, which on Twitter is formatted deer, like the animal, underscore F-U-L, or you can find me on emmawinston.me.